at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have with me Adam Sawotsky. He's an associate professor at the Mayo Clinic. And we've been collaborating for a little while and I have to get to know Adam um, as a colleague these days. So I'm very excited to see the conversation where it takes us in terms of what his interests as are because of, that will also inform the dynamics of our research team, which we usually have a lot of fun. So welcome Adam to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Great. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. And as per usual, I like, a, as I we were chatting the other day, this podcast is about the people behind the research. So it's more about who the people are, where are they coming from, and where they're going. So obviously, the first question for me is like about your curiosities growing up. Like, who was Adam? And can you give us a little bit of a mental representation of the environment where you grew up and who was around you and what were you interested about during those years? Yeah, no problem. So I grew up in Minnesota. My um, parents moved there when I was five. So most of my memories of growing up are from Minnesota, even though that's not where I was born. Um, my mother was a nurse uh, and I say was because she just retired, uh, which was exciting. And then my father, uh, we moved to Minnesota because he started a travel agency. And so he um, is a small business owner. Um, and then I am, uh, I have one younger brother. So there's two of us. Mm -hmm. um, when you, when I think about curiosities growing up, I, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I would say probably the two biggest things that my parents did that really helped Kind of generate curiosity. I mean, I think number one was just a love of reading. So we had weekly trips to the library. And I think one of the interesting things my parents did was, um, I wouldn't say I had a strict bedtime, but I definitely had, um, you know, a very specific bedtime. Uh, but one of the things they did was they got us reading lamps on our beds and said, you have to go to bed at a certain time but you can stay up reading as late as you want. <laughs> and oh, so, that is cool. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, between that and going to the library every week, uh, I did a lot of reading. And so I think that just um, generated a love of reading and, and an interest about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. I would say the other thing is because my dad was a travel agent and he was a travel agent in the like 80s and 90s before, um, internet, you know, so it was kind of the heyday of travel agency. Um, we traveled a ton. Um, and so, you know, cause he had a ton of perks. And so I think just getting to see, um, the world and experience things. And then to the point where my dad actually decided, um, when I was going into eighth grade, he decided that as a family, we needed to live in another country for a year. So not just travel, but actually live, experience the culture, learn a new language. And so through contacts, um, we lived in China for a year when I was in. Wow, that's a big change. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would say those, uh, those things definitely, um, yeah, generated a lot of kind of curiosity about things and a, a wide variety of curiosity, I would say. 
So can, can you give us some ideas? First of all, what kind of books were you reading when you went sent to bed? And number two, like what did you experience in China that was memorable that is still stays with you? Oh, gosh. I mean, books, I feel like I, it was anything and everything. I remember early on reading a lot of, um, I don't know why these come to mind, Matthew Christopher sports books, because I was really into sports and, and reading. But I just remember adventure. And, I, you know, to, even to this day, I still love like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And so a lot of kind of fantasy books um, and love reading those with my boys now. Um, you know, as far as my time in in China, you know, it's interesting. I guess one of the things, you know, I look back on that time, even why I went into medicine and maybe even medical education is, you know, while we were there, you know, I went with my mom to the hospital. She taught English to physicians at the local children's hospital. And then we would often get to know them and have them into our home. So I got to meet a lot of um Chinese physicians. And then there were some American physicians in our group who were there as well that were doing a lot of medical education stuff. So I don't know that I necessarily knew that that's what I wanted to do. But when I look back and go, hmm, well, like, what are some of the influences there? Like, I can, I can see those influences even during that time. And how was that? Um, like, how old were you when, when you were in China? So I was 13 and 14. Yeah, that's a pretty pure years. Like, how was the adjustment to the culture and the activities? Like, what kind of activities would you do after the school if you went to school there and friends and things like that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I felt like it, it was super easy. I think part of that was because at that age, learning language, especially when you're living in the culture, is fair, was fairly easy, I felt like, to be at least conversational. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, going shopping, traveling around China, you know, I felt like I had a lot of independence and then I played a lot of basketball with local kids. <laughs> so, cause I was the tall white <laughs> American, um, yeah, I got, it was easy to find a basketball game. So I felt like I got to interact with, um, a lot of the local kids from like the local school after I finished my classwork to went and play basketball. Okay. And what, was there somebody who was like critical during the, the time you were in China that you still remember and you're still in contact with, like what's kind of your big memory about being there? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, um, it, it was actually interesting because I went back there as a medical student um, oh. and worked with them. And one of the, the people that I remember and I look up to a ton, um, he was actually a PhD in public health and um, just a really outgoing, no, he's just one of those guys that like, just seemed to have no reservations. Like he could enter into a conversation anywhere and, and anything. And I remember actually, one of the things I remember when I went back you know, and I was in the middle of medical school and he looked at me, he goes, why are you becoming a doctor? He goes, if you really want to make a difference, you should go into public health. Oh, <laughs> I, remember, I remember going, oh, well, I was in my fourth year of medical school at that time, but I'm like, yeah, kind of too late now, but um, it was interesting. But yeah, I know he was just, uh, he's still someone I look up to and um, 
yeah, I've, I know he's back in the in the states now, and 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 older, but our family still are in contact, and oh. yeah, that's nice. So that was you were thirteen. How mm -hmm. long were you there? A year. A year. And now, yeah. okay, you're back in the states. How was that adjustment? I, I'm curious to about the time you came back to the states and how. That those experiences with the experience of the new transition influenced your decisions for choosing medicine or whatever you did. Did you do medicine right away or did you do something else? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think when I came back, you know, I jumped right in to high school as a ninth grader. And um, I think from that moment on, as I was going through high school, really, it was my focus to to get good grades and do well because I knew I wanted to get into med school. Um, it's so interesting. And, and maybe I'll go back a little bit because I feel yeah. like, you know, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. Fred, um, Fred Hafferty, my main mentor here at Mayo said to me at one point, as I was working through some of our identity work, he looked at me and he said, do you think people go into education and education research because they're still trying to work out their own identity struggles? <laughs> and I said, ouch, Fred, are you meaning that globally? Are you, are you meaning that for me? And uh, I think the part of the reason maybe it is, is that, that I like to do identity research is because I am still kind of maybe working out some of my own struggle. So I, I say that because looking back, I go, um, I really feel like one of my struggles developing my own professional identity has been around this idea of me as an academic. I feel like it was, um, you know, moving from high school to college, it was natural to think about getting into medicine mm -hmm. and becoming a doctor. And I think I always knew I wanted to be a general internist because I just always had a broad interest um, and like to think about a lot of different things and maybe not always go so deep in any one thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I never saw myself as a researcher. I mean, even in medical school, I just said, I don't, I don't want to do research. And then um, when I came to residency, there was a requirement for us to do a scholarly project. And so I remember early on walking into my program director's office and just saying, hey, I know I need to do this scholarly project. I, I don't know what to do. I like general medicine. I like global health. I like medical education, but I don't necessarily know what that would look like. And he actually handed me, he's like, I have this project that would fulfill all three of those. And it's, it was a qualitative research project on um, the kind of our resident reflections after doing an international health elective during their residency training. And uh, it took me like three years of residency to figure out even what qualitative research meant <laughs> and to get the project done. And, but I did it. And once I got it published, I, I don't know, I just caught a bug, but I think part of it was not realizing that I could do research. You know, I'd come from a biomedical background. I was a biology major in undergrad and, you know, going through medical training, I, I, I really wasn't exposed to qualitative research and, you know, psychological and sociological theories and how those would impact the way we think about things. And so it kind of opened up this whole world to me, but I also felt like um, it was, it was foreign. And it was, a, for me, it was kind of a struggle to really 
I feel like develop those skills and ways of thinking. Um, but it was ultimately the intersection of that project, which sp spawned some other work and coming on staff and meeting Fred Hafferty, who'd done all this work in prof the professionalism space and had talked about professional, a professional identity. And then the, the, the stuff that we were finding in these reflections that weren't captured in other ways, but were clearly residents reflecting on their own identity and the struggles that they had as they were exposed to this international health elective, this, this experience. And then my own, I mean, I had done that. And so I think there was kind of my own working through the difficulties of becoming a, a professional in my own, I felt like struggles that all led to me go, huh, this, this would be a fun line of research. Oh, awesome. So Fred, this has to be a topic of conversation for us because I've been fascinated to have met him. And you had the opportunity to meet him and has, has, have him as his, your mentor. Yeah. When did you meet him and how did you meet him? Like, I want to know the beginnings of this relationship. I, I mean, again, I'm almost embarrassed because, it, you know, I was so naive at the time. I didn't know much. And I came on staff and... I was sitting in my division chair's office saying, hey, you know, I've just completed a master's in medical education. Um, I've done a little bit of research in medical education. I want to try to continue to make that my focus. Mm -hmm. um, and he goes, yeah, you should, you should meet this guy, Fred Hafferty. And he set up a time uh, to meet. And I, I still laugh at it with him because I'm like, I, I don't know. I walked in, I must've been, you must've been thinking like, who is this guy? And I knew <laughs> nothing about Fred. And I just said, Hey, I was told, you know, I was supposed to meet you and here. And then of course, like every meeting with Fred an hour later, I was wrapped in conversations and questions and had more ideas and thoughts. than I even knew what I could do with, um, which mm -hmm. happens most of the time with Fred, but yeah, the first meeting was just someone said, Hey, you need, you need to meet this guy. And, um, I, yeah, I'm so incredibly, I'm incredibly blessed. It's been an amazing uh, partnership. So I'm glad to have him as a mentor. So he, he's been at the Mayo Clinic too? Yeah, so he's been here. He, he came from uh, the University of Minnesota Duluth, I think around 10 to 15 years ago. So before I came, I've been there almost 10 years now. Mm -hmm. So he was there a little bit before I was. Um, been brought on because of his professionalism and, and biomedical ethics work to, to work yeah. here at Mayo and, and then got connected to me and several other people through that. Yeah. So you and him have a really special relationship and you are like partners, as you said, you usually use the word collaborators, but I can, I can understand the meaning of the word partner is a little bit deeper. What do you think is the the fuel of that, what makes it work so well for the two of you? What's similar or different among the two of you that make it work? I have to say part of what makes it work so well is, you know, it's just Fred is so incredibly generous. So I remember early on, um, you know, I was told, oh, you have to have these conversations and work out authorship and all this stuff up front. And I remember navigating this conversation and he just said, whoa, 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 let me stop you there. He goes, I have achieved everything that I need to achieve in my life. You don't ever have to worry about 
asking me questions or where I stand in authorship or anything. He's like, I just like want to help you and invest in you. Um, and so that was just how we started. And that was just an amazing gift to me to go, okay, like I, like there's no awkwardness. And then I think it's just his unbridled joy of particularly being an interviewer in our studies. And you've seen that in, in the work that we're doing now, like he just absolutely loves doing it. And so even, um, you know, even as he's getting near retirement, um, he said, like, he's essentially told me if I don't ask him to be involved in my studies moving forward, like he'll be offended because <laughs> he just loves <laughs> He just loves being a part of it. And I think, um, I just, I think it works because, you know, again, I'm a clinician who really wants to be an academic and he's an academic who really, like I said, just is able to challenge me to think about things in new ways and deeper ways. And, mm -hmm. and it just works. So, yeah. but yeah, it's, he's oh. been incredibly generous with me and that's, I think been all that's meant everything. Yeah, and for him to be generous, you also have to be generous. But I think he's, it goes both ways. So like, congratulations on having that partnership. So you mentioned just now this the challenges, like you're a physician trying to be an academic. Uh, and before you were talking about it, it took you three years to understand what qualitative research was. What were, have been the main challenges in trying to become a researcher and also the main joys of that? Yeah, so I think a couple challenges. One is, is that as a clinician and even as an educator, um, I've been trained to think very practically, right? Like, here's a problem. How do we fix it? And, and I wasn't trained on just sort of those deeper, that deeper understanding, particularly around theory. So I often say now, like, if I could go back, I wish I would have been like a sociology major in my undergrad, <laughs> you know, like, I wish I would have done something non, non-biological or science, science, like hard sciences. And um, so I think that's been, that's been hard to continue being a, you know, busy clinician, busy educator, but still trying to find space to think deeply, um, read you know, having to read things like, you know, Fred's got me reading things like Goffman and, you know, so, sort of like primary sociological work to go, okay, how is this, does this inform the studies that we're doing? Um, and, and maybe a little bit of gatekeeping. I don't know. I remember early on, um, it was my first professional identity formation um, study, which you know, we ended up publishing, but I remember uh, getting a scathing review. Uh, and, I f and, and I know everyone has this, but I felt like the review was, first off, like I, I felt like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't use the right language. Like I was still learning the language of, of yeah. scientific writing. Um, and, and so I feel like I had lost some credibility in the eyes of the reviewer or editor because I, I wasn't speaking quite the right language. Mm -hmm. um, but then there was also a bit, I don't know, Fred used the words, uh, it felt like this is my sandbox, why are you playing in it? <laughs> and, I, and I don't know if that's, again, I think that was part of, um, I, I just didn't, 
I didn't always know how to communicate well the ideas that I had. Um, and I think that's been a huge grow, growth moment for me is how do I communicate like more like an academic? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's, there's certainly the road to legitimacy goes through having, being able to communicate well, like I can have all the right ideas and, and ask the right questions, but if I can't communicate it well, I think the biggest joy has been now that I, I feel like I've gained some legitimacy in the, in the field is, is that people begin to look to me and go, Oh, like, you know, a bit about what you're doing and, and you've gotten some stuff published. Can you, can you help me? And so becoming a more of a mentor and, and in the mentor role has been incredibly fulfilling for me. I enjoy, um, yeah, sitting down with colleagues and mentees and, and being able to ask them questions and challenge their thinking and, um, move projects forward and, and, and even, yeah, tackle some of the big ideas within medical education. So that's been fun. That's, that's great. And I think that's the, the beauty because it, it emerges organically, right? Because mm-hmm. you never expect it. And when it comes, it's like so nice. So good for you. More on the practical side, you said that you got that review and that got you thinking about how to better communicate or get your scientific language better. What measures did you take? What did you do to get there? And what, was it intentional or we just repeat and repeat until you kind of got it? So one of the intentional things I did, and I, I recognized pretty early on that the, the little training I had had in my master's work on qualitative research was just not enough. And so I did the qualitative atelier at um, the Wilson Center. And I went, all, I went three years in a row because they did a kind of a beginning, intermediate and advanced level. Um, so I went three years in a row. So I got to hang out with the people at the Wilson center, uh, for three years, or that was, those were the first three years I was on staff. Um, I, I, you know, my thinking, how to engage with theory, how to communicate findings, particularly from a qualitative standpoint. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, and then, yeah, I think some of it is just writing and rewriting and, like I said, Fred, part of his generousness is he has, I mean, I'm looking at a stack of papers right here and they're, he, he still handwrites on my uh, drafts, but they're, they've got handwriting all over them. And just his challenge, challenges to me to be able to communicate clearly and, and effectively have been helpful. So those are probably the two, two biggest things. That's great. So you became now a researcher, you are well known in the community. Besides Fred, are there any other people that you have relied on that have become kind of the, the people behind your successes? Because we, we don't make ourselves. It's usually, it's because of others. Who else do you think have played a big role in your career thus far that, that you wanna just recognize? Yeah, so I would say, you know, again, um, Early on in my master's work at the University of Pittsburgh, several people, I would say Roseanne Grignary was my initial uh, mentor. And not that she was a big researcher, but um, just a, an incredible clinician and educator and, and someone who thought deeply about issues regarding uh, medical education. And she was head of the, the master's program there. And she was my primary mentor and she was uh, fantastic. 
you know, being in that master's program as a fellow, being with other, um, with other fellows who were also thinking that like that pushed a lot uh, in ways that I, you know, I look back and go, I'm so grateful for that time. You know, and I think of, um, Jed Gonzalo, who's at uh, Penn State Hershey, who's a, an, ed- an education researcher there, and, and just some chats that we had over a beer, coffee, you know, that really challenged me to grow. Early on staff, Tom Beckman, um, you know, I remember coming here, I remember meeting with him at the Society of General Internal Medicine meeting before I came on staff and gave him a proposal of a study that I was thinking about doing when I first came on staff and just how again, generous he was with his time and, 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 uh, patient he was with me early on when I was struggling to, to do things well. Um, you know, other people in my division who are, are, are fairly well known for their research, like Colin West and, and Dave Cook have been, um, instrumental. And then just glad that I, I work in an institution that, you know, it can be hard to come, funding and time for research can be hard to come by. Um, but, you know, like I said, people like Dave Cook here have, have worked to um, find ways to, to fund and support education research, which, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do this without that. Right. So. right. That, that's brilliant because that's the, the main support is what gets you going and then you can fly after that. Yeah. Before, before we get into what I call kind of the small things in life, it's my recent idea for this podcast, I want to just know your take on from your research thus far as a person, as a physician, what has been the most memorable lesson that you have learned from doing the research that you do that is carrying with you in your profession? You know, doing identity work um, has has opened my eyes, I think, more and more to the ways in which our learners struggle and really need uh, that support. So when I think about even my role as an educator, especially at the residency level, um, I feel like I've begun to, to realize more and more that the the importance of what I do is, is maybe less about teaching facts as it is about what do I do to help um, the residents I work with kind of navigate these challenges that, that have real and significant impacts on their professional identity. So when I think about, you know, the work that I'm doing now and the work that we're doing together, I mean, it's really spurred me to want to investigate that more because you know, the more and more you dig into it, the more and more it's clear that identity form, professional identity formation in medicine is not a linear, neat process. It's, it's a messy process and it's really hard at times. And I think most people have some, some amount of struggle with it. And so, um, you know, doing the research has helped me in my practical clinic, clinician educator role of just being attuned to some of those issues that have kind of deeper significance and not overlooking those to teach more about hyponatremia or whatever medical issue, but actually trying to make time in the midst of our busy clinical schedules to say, Hey, like, this is a real important thing. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's make time to talk about it. So that's nice. Well, it's a, it's a good thing for your residents to have you doing that. I imagine. 
Okay, let's move into the small things in life, what I call. What is the best time for your kids now? Yeah, they're getting a little older, so it's it's changed a little bit. Um, I used to read to them every night um, before they go to bed. And again, as a way to try to foster for them a love of learning and a love of reading. Um, probably the highlight was last year we, f we, we finished and I read to them through all of Lord of the Rings, which, oh wow, which is one of my favorite books. Um, yeah, it took us a while, um, <laughs> but it's one of my favorite books and just to see their joy. I mean, my favorite moment was when I would close the book and they'd be like, no dad, keep reading, keep reading. You're like, I can't, oh, awesome. my voice is about to die. Um, it's changed a little bit. So my, my sons are now 14 and 11. So they've gotten a little bit older. They stay up a little bit later. <laughs> and, um, my son is my older son now is in, um, high school soccer. And so right now that's taken up a lot of time and made mm -hmm. for later evening. So I miss that a bit, but, um, we've, we've kind of maybe moved past that a little bit, but, but are you comfortable? Do you think they got the idea about reading? Oh, they love it. Yeah, no, they, oh, they love good. they love to read. And I think yeah. we still kind of have done a similar policy of, hey, it's bedtime, but, but you can right. stay up reading. Although the, I don't say we can, you can stay up as late as you want because there would be nights that we would go to bed late and be like, hey, you need to turn your light off. Yeah. <laughs> so. so when Adam is not in the clinic and he's not with his family, what did you do if you are on your own? But what's your hobby alone? Yeah, I love, um, I still love reading. So you'll, you'll still find me uh, with a good book. And we have a little hammock underneath our deck in our back. I love to just sit in the hammock and read a book. I love hiking uh, and backpacking. So I don't know that I do that alone, although I have done a couple trips on my own, although my wife doesn't like it when I go out into the woods on my own because then... <laughs> <laughs> she's always worried about me but um I love so I often take boys or go with my boys or go with a friend we'll go backpacking out out nice. in the middle of nowhere and to me getting away part of that is I just love getting away part of that is I also enjoy um taking pictures and so oh, okay. um oftentimes hiking and backpacking gets you to places that mm -hmm. have beautiful scenery that you wouldn't get to if you drove there or just spent mm -hmm. a day so so what would be like a memorable hike for you that you've done? Oh, gosh. Um, so the last two years, we've gone to the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming, and we've yeah. climbed up into the Bighorn Mountains and, and backpacked there for several nights, which has been fun. Mm -hmm. um, I spent a year in Arizona after residency, and we did a lot of backpacking kind of up um, uh Pariah Canyon and Buckskin Gulch is probably one of my favorites. It's a 16, there's a 16 mile slot canyon um, with just beautiful red kind of rock formations that we, we camped for three nights in there. And so oh, that was, that's that was awesome. pretty. Okay, so th those are hobbies. Now, if you were to choose a different career from medicine, you were very, very focused on getting into medicine. So now what do you If you had the choice, moving back in time, what do you think you would have become or wanted to do? Yeah, this is hard. So, you know, I, 
I would, I said in my med school interviews, I would have been, you know, they always ask, what would you do if you didn't get into medicine? And I always said, oh. I'd become a high school uh, biology teacher, which I actually think I probably would have. And I would have really loved it. Um, now though, it's interesting. So, uh, one of my colleagues has gotten really into brewing beer Ooh. and has brought me along for the ride. And so he and I brew together and we sort of joke, we, we jokingly call it our, our, PubMed Brewing Company is the name of our brewery. <laughs> and so now we all say, gosh, you know, maybe someday, you know, if we hone our, our brewing recipes, maybe we'll start our own microbrewery. So maybe that's what I would do if I wasn't in medicine now. I would I would start my own microbrewery and with with maybe. my buddy Luke Hafdal and maybe also a retirement plan. Yeah, maybe. who knows? Yeah, that would be fun. Well, I heard stories of professors becoming brewers. So I it's a, it's a pattern going on. <laughs> yeah. We have fun. He's the, he's the chemist. He, he was a chemistry oh. undergrad. And so he, he messes with all the, all the uh, yeasts and the temperatures and he has all the gadgets. I come up, I just come up with the ideas and I'm our case tester, I guess. What kind of ideas? Like ideas for beers? Like yeah, for beers? yeah. 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 Oh. So like, like one of our best, uh, we just, um, we submitted it to the Minnesota State Fair uh, is a Saison that we brewed with um, um, juniper berries, bitter orange peel and coriander. So give it kind of a spice and, and flavor and turned out really nice. Hmm. So, Where did you get the ideas from? Oh, just trying other beers and kind of thinking about flavors and what, what do I enjoy and what, what kinds of flavors could we mimic or might we might bring out kind of unique flavors okay. from the beer. So, okay, we 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 keep an eye on on the brand. Like, who knows? You might be making a a unique one, <laughs> become who, famous. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Okay, I have two more questions. One is this is something I'm beginning to do in some interviews. Is I have this deck of cards here, and I like to pick one. Whatever comes out is your question. Are you comfortable with that? Sure. Okay. Like I said, though, I don't think uh, quickly on my feet, which is why I'm an internist and not a critical <laughs> care doc or an ER doc, but go for it. Okay, this is a challenge. We'll see how it goes. Okay, here we go. It says, if you could do something dangerous just once with no risk, what would you do? Something dangerous. Man, I am so afraid of heights. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love the idea of potentially like skydiving or bungee jumping or even like hang gliding. I, I just, I would never do it, but <laughs> I like the idea of it. I'm just so afraid of heights. So that's probably if, if I could get over and I wouldn't think about the risk of it, that's probably what I would do. Okay. That's a great answer. I highly recommend skydiving. <laughs> okay. And my last question and I hope it's okay if I ask this question, you tell me. You always wear bow ties. Where is this coming from and how did you choose them every day? Well, that's, that's great. So actually my very first bow tie, um, my wife, who was then my girlfriend, um, purchased for me because we, had, we went to college together and we had a college banquet. And one of my friends tied his own bow ties. And I just thought that was really cool. So I said, for this formal, like I want to tie my own bow tie. Um, and so that was my first bow tie. 
when I went to med school, actually, one of my mentors, he was um, Elmer Holtzinger. He was probably in his 70s when I was a med student. And he was a he was a smaller man and he wore bow ties every day. And he was just to me like the consummate internist. Like he just was smart and knew the literature and spent time with his patients and he could diagnose anything just by taking a history and doing an exam. And I'm just like, man, I want to be like him someday. And so um, in med school, I started collecting more bow ties. And then when I came to Mayo for residency, when we moved, I actually had enough bow ties that I um, gave away most of my regular ties and a couple of my favorites, my wife actually sent in and had them made into bow ties. Um, And so since residency, no one has ever seen me wear a regular tie. Yeah. And I'm always seeing you in every meeting Um, with a a bow tie. And do you have a parameter to choose them or it goes by whatever you want or how did you decide which one to wear every day? I just, however, I, whatever I feel like, I guess, I don't know. I, I, you know, it's interesting because I have so many now because they're easy gifts. And so people have just gotten me bow ties throughout the year. So I've actually had to like go through and maybe take out ones I don't wear anymore, or, but I still keep on those like original bow ties that I first got. Like those are still some of my favorites because mm-hmm. I'm sentimental that way, but. Oh, that's, that's cool. Thank you for sharing. I was, that was a personal curiosity for a long time since we started to collaborate. <laughs> that is what yeah. the perfect opportunity to ask. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Okay. Adam, thank you very much. It was very enjoyable chatting with you. I, I hope you had a good time. And to our listeners, thank you for listening as well. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.